You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Gracious Father, we give you thanks um, this day for our history, um, for this church, for the way that you worked here for generation upon generation, for the faithful succession of, of people that have, have come before you and beneath your word here in this place and around this city, uh, uh, in the state, and around the world. Um, uh, humbly, Lord, we ask now that you would, would speak to us yet again. Um, your mercy is renewed each morning as manna received in the wilderness. Um, let us receive your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just briefly, um, say again, hope everybody's hearing this, um, but the three booklets, which are right outside, uh, do hope everybody gets a chance to, to get those before you leave today, if you didn't get one last week, and then join us, several of us, hopefully even hundreds of us, in praying, praying for the Advent. Um, uh, morning, noon, night, alone, as a family, um, as a small group, there's lots of different ways. I think this will probably happen over the next six weeks, but, uh, but it starts today. Um, uh, week one, day one is a, a very fancy way that we, we called all that, so hope you'll, hope you'll join us. Working through this series, um, going through Mark with the, uh, the title of Christ Coming to You, today's called One Way to Love. I think Paul's all, I'm a former rector here, a lot of people in this room looking around would know Paul. Um, uh, a great fin- friend and mentor to many of us. I think he coined the phrase, as far as I know, one-way love. We all know what a one-way street is, unidirectional. You can't go two ways. There's only one way through. This idea of Christ coming down, um, that Christ comes to you, that love comes down, not only at Christmas, uh, the great little Advent Christmas hymn that we sing by Christina Rossetti, um, but, but it comes down the day before Christmas, the day after Christmas, on September 24th, on the day of your birth, on the day of your death. Um, love always comes down. Um, one way love. Um, here's a story which illustrates it. Um, we love, love always needs an object. So immediately, love is a relational word. I know it's very technical, but it's fun to break that down. Um, so love always has a relationship. Love is always given and received in a relationship. One-way love originates from a source and then goes forth without any expectation of return, maybe even without even the possibility of a return. Um, certainly there's a thing, quid pro quo, this for that, what comes around goes around. All those would be two-way love, conditional love, love, um, uh, couched in uh, a normal human relationship. Um, that's the way most of our, our love is, but one-way love, um, which we do see sometimes, to, to borrow Paul and bring it over in a different place, and as, as in a mirror dimly, between two people, there are glimmers of one-way love between human relationships. Um, and here's a story of that. Um, uh, somebody wrote this in the New York Times several years ago. Two people were married when they were 24, and it picks up with this story, um, looking backwards. Two years ago, when Julia and I were 27 and in our third year of marriage, she suffered a psychotic break. 
She had no history of mental illness preceding the abrupt arrival of delusions and paranoia. It was a bewildering decline that snowballed from typical work, uh, from typical work stress to mild depression to sleeplessness to voices speaking to her in the night. The fact that she did not speak much while on the antipsychotic medication also meant that I spoke a lot, the beginnings of one-way love. She couldn't. She was unable to actually do it. Um, so he, which meant that I spoke a lot about silly things, things that filled the silence so that I could try to keep her mind there with me and not adrift to her illness. But occasionally she spoke on her own without prompting and beyond yes or no. Those rare moments of self-initiated conversation were always about one of two subjects, suicide or love. The suicide conversations were never fun. They happened over and over, out of nowhere, in the midst of one of our agreed-upon dog walks, or while washing the dishes or whatever. Often, as I talked about something insignificant, Julia would interrupt and say, Mark, if someone kills themselves, do they still get a funeral? These suicidal conversations could be quick or they could be slow. One time, we were biking to yoga together, and I had to pull over. Uh, we had to pull over and sit on the sidewalk for almost two hours while she sobbed and begged me to let her kill herself. I pleaded with her just to hang on through this moment, that it would pass, and that she would someday, somehow, start to feel better again. When the suicidal feelings gripped her tightly, her whole body groaned and wailed over the loss of control of mind and feelings. I would hold her, but I learned that all I could do in those moments was to sit there and let it be. So I did. And then the fog would clear. The suicidal impulses would slip back under the surface and the muted, agreeable Julia would return. Are you okay now, honey? Yes? Do you know how proud I am and how much I love you? And with a pause, yes. Are you ready to get back on the bike and to go home? Yes. In our conversations about love, which would also arise unprompted, Julia would interrupt whatever we were doing and tell me how much she loved me. As her spouse and caregiver, one of my biggest struggles was to keep my own emotions in check. She was too fragile to witness how much her delusions, her paranoia, her depression scared and worried me, and so I had to pretend that none of it bothered me. I became a master at compartmentalizing my worry and my anxiety, neatly packaging my feelings into some small, permissible moments when I had the time and the space away from Julia. For the most part, though, I was her cheerleader, and nothing, no matter how dark or despairing, could shake me. But when she told me that she loved me, that I was saving her life, and that she was staying alive, not for herself, but for me, those moments always left me stunned. Teary-eyed, breathless, I had no defense against those. They left me reaching to find my stability, rather than the other way around. How can you shield yourself from the impact of someone saying, I love you, and why would you? I'm glad to have left behind the anxiety of unknown, the anxiety and unknowns of dealing with a serious mental illness. It was a grueling year for both of us. And yet, when I look back on that year, I have to admit there's a part of me that misses it, or more accurately, a part of it that I miss. I don't miss the illness itself, of course, but I do miss how much we talked about life and love that year. It seemed like all we ever talked about. In one sense, we have never communicated less in our relationship and never been in such different mental spaces yet. In another sense, 
we were closer emotionally than we ever have been and more deeply connected. Her mental illness cats such a strange web of paradoxes into our life together. Nowadays, <laughs> we bicker about things uh, like doing the dishes. One of us will say, I cooked dinner, so can you wash the dishes? And the other will respond, well, I did the laundry today, and I folded it, and I put it away, so no. But I walked the dog. Well, I made the, I made the bed until finally one of us does the dishes. When Julia was sick, we did the dishes together because there was nothing else to do. As long as we were together, we could agreeably wait out the disease and show it that we were more patient than it was. I think that's what I miss. We weren't in such a rush to do anything else because there was no certainty of a future. So we defaulted to living in the present, focusing on each moment of our yes and no days, a time when only two things mattered to us, life and love. That's an intense story to start off with, um, but it puts it right there, um, trying to gain clarity as we're thinking about this reality of one-way love and borrowing some of my hand motions from the previous classes of this and all that. Remember the Newton's balls, I think, is what they're called, those ball-bearing game death toys that my grandfather had on his desk and gave away so generously because he had 13 other ones. Um, and I'm calling that repentance because that's where we started in Mark 1, where repentance is not this activity that's now laid upon us as an expectation. Repent and believe. Okay, so Gil needs to repent. That means I need to sufficiently muster up um, sorrow, regret, um, an awareness of what I did wrong. Let me enunciate it to a fearless moral inventory in step four language, whatever you want to do. You know, that's, that, if there's part of that, yes, but more deeply yet, that's not repentance. Repentance has this sense of shock and awe, of wonder, love, and praise, of, as Mark will repeat a dozen times throughout his gospel, and they were amazed, and they were stunned, and they were left like this man when in the middle of talking about silly things just to fill the air because her wife could not speak otherwise one way love but she would come back in a moment of clarity I love you and it would undo him he was able to keep things compartmentalized until love the one way love of the husband to the wife who could not love in return and yet in that moment of clarity coming to her senses recognizing either life or death, suicide, or love, and she saw love. She said, I love you. It would undo him. I think that's the pattern that we find here in Mark. That's the whole reason I sort of set it up that way, trying to ground it in something of an extreme. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but in the ways probably all too familiar. Yeah, that's probably um, all too familiar example. If not you, then probably somebody that you love has done something pretty similar to that, of what this man just described, this endurance of a year of one-way love. Um, I think we find this in Mark. So if you have your Bibles, there's several over there if you want to grab one. We're going to be in Mark 5. Um, could do all of it. I think we'll just do for time um, part of it. Uh, but as we're there, um, you know, I just want to bring this back out. Um, Pardon me while I turn. Any thoughts on one-way love? Just trying to ground the idea of what one-way love is. Love, which not only 
where there may not be the possibility of two directions, of a bi-directionality. Um, it, it comes one way. Um, thank you, Henry. Um, just to catch up where we've been, um, trying also to use as a subtext for the class for us to think about who Christ actually is rather than who we want him to be. Um, the Jesus who blesses our agendas or who we use to justify, um, confirm, we talked about that confirmation bias, to confirm the things we already believe or to confirm that Jesus is for this thing that I want as well. That's the way that's human nature. We can't not not be that way. Um, that Jesus is an equal opportunity offender to, uh, uh, to all of us. He's going to offend some part of our sensibility. And just thinking about some of the parts of where Jesus has been since Mark 2 up until this point, I went through and just highlighted a couple of, of things. He's, he's both radically inclusive, yes. Who does he hang out with? Seeming to have a preference for the poor, the sick, the lame, people with withered hands who are paralytic who are the prostitutes or the brothel keepers or tax collectors and other sinners, um, people who were extortioners of their own people, um, people who had leprosy, who were the outside, who were mixed race, who, who just for whatever reason wasn't a proper person. Um, that gets packed in there in two chapters. I mean, Mark moves so quick. Um, but at the same time, before somebody can say, yep, we need... Jesus to be sort of the rebel like Che Guevara or something else like that, being the voice for the voiceless. If it's all he does, he also says things like um, to the group of Pharisees, these are the people who are the keepers of the law, he says mockingly, have you never read what David did? Um, well, he would have, uh, they would have that memorized um, verbatim, and he's mocking them. Have you never read what David did? In the synagogue, he looked around at the scribes and others with anger, and grieved at their hardness of heart. And they went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him and how to destroy him. Um, he was not meek and mild and simply um, telling nice people to be nicer or telling good people how to be better um, or even telling you know, bad people how to be good. Um, he was uh, offending the deepest parts of of. Uh, of the way things ought to be, of the way that we think things ought to be. And so the people were out to kill him. This is in the third chapter of a 16-chapter book, and already the plots have started. And the crowds are coming, and, he had a, uh, uh, and, and, and they keep coming wave after wave, and you think, okay, this is what he's doing. He's here to heal people and to help people. But he has, at the beginning, before he even starts healing people, he has an escape plan. He tells the disciples before they go, have a boat ready because I'm going to do this from the water, because not as many people are going to climb into the water, and then when they start to, I'm going to get in the boat and we're going to leave. Um, that's in chapter 3. Uh, his own family was outside the door, and everybody's like, what's your son doing in there? What's your half-brother doing in there? And they all say, he's out of his mind. They call him a nut. Um, the scribes again accuse him of being demonic. He's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. And his mother and his half-brother are outside waiting for him and says, your mom's outside. And she says, Who's my mom? These people around me, these are my mother, and these are my brothers. Um, he is systematically, it seems, making enemies. Um, uh, so that's who we meet, and that's who we're coming to at the very end of chapter 4. 
I want to sort of pull this in too. Um, what Jesus calms a storm, if you have your Bible, this is Mark 4.35. Um, just trying to get in this idea of, of uh, one of the fundamental questions, who is Jesus? We think we know. Philip Yancey had a great book years ago, The Jesus I Never Knew. It's worth, it's worth, it's worth a penny on Amazon's used book list right now. Um, one of the ways um, I've taught this passage, I think a lot of us do, this is where Jesus calms the storm uh, by saying, peace be still. Um, and the disciples say, who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. What do we normally think of? I think we normally then want to apply this. And somebody like me is going to ask people like you, so what are the storms in your life? Where do you need peace? And that's true. I'm not saying that's a wrong way to read this, but let me read this and offer a different way. <laughs> On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side, because all the people are here, let's go over there. <laughs> and leaving the crowd, they took with him in the boat, just, they, they, took him, uh, they took him, Jesus, with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And he said, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And while they were filled with great fear, wonder, love, awe, praise, fear, and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Rather than walking away, wondering, okay, how do I apply this? How can I cultivate my faith? Because he says, have you still no faith? Obviously, then Jesus wants me to have faith. How do I get this faith? Maybe that's the application. The storm arose and a great wind, uh, but they panicked. And, uh, and they cried out to Jesus. Okay, so maybe I cry out to Jesus. Maybe that's the application. Um, maybe it's that I'm not supposed to be afraid at all. I should have, I should have not been afraid of dying. Um, maybe it is the metaphorical, allegorical reading. What are my storms? Where is my wind? Where, where, where do I have need? Now, all that, is it wrong? It's not wrong. But I think the reading on its face, this is where I've been this summer, because I've been thinking about this, um, I think the story just sets up the question, who then is this? Even the wind and the seas obey him. (laughs) It is one-way love. It is a one-way word. He speaks, and it goes, and it happens. And it sets up what happens in Mark 5. So let's read. We're going to read the first half. Um, Mark 5 is a great, great, great chapter. the second half is the woman who has an issue of blood, um, who's been bleeding for 14 years so that um, she sought the care of many physicians, but their care only made her worse. Um, uh, and Jesus encounters her only because somebody else uh, in humility, a Roman official, comes to him and kneels before this riffraff from Nazareth. Very humbling experience. Um, and says, teacher, rabbi, Maybe you can heal my daughter, for she is almost dead. She's sick, great with fever, whatever. And he says, well, let's go. And along the way, this woman interrupts him, and Jesus allows himself to be interrupted. He's, you know, it's a 911 call. 
and they stop and they deal with this woman who's got a chronic disease, acute emergency, 14 years, and he stops. And she touches the hem of the garment. If you were in my class, remember the, the touch of Jacob, um, uh, the touch of the angle on Jacob's hip. That's where the parallel here is between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Just, just a touch, not a grab, not with a prayer. It was just that, just a touch. And instantly, Jesus felt the power going out of him, one-way love. Uh, and she, displacement, um, knows immediately, that immediately is the big word in Mark, remember, that she was healed, that she was saved, is the word. And then the little girl, remember her? Oh yeah, the 911 call, somebody else comes, forget it. She's already died, it's too late. Um, maybe if you hadn't stopped. It would have been, but it's too late. You did a good thing. Don't, it's okay. It's okay. And he says, no, no, no. She's not dead. She's only asleep by laughing. They knew one thing back then. They knew death. They knew what it was to die. Much, much more than we did. And he goes forward and, uh, and takes Peter and James and John and the father. Can you imagine being the father? It's a great story. And they go in weeping and wailing outside. The funerals have already started, the, the three-day funeral. And he goes in and he says, little girl, get up. It's like Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. Little girl, Talitha, kum. Little girl, I say to you, arise. And she gets up. And what does he say? The most ordinary thing in the world. One-way love. Give her something to eat. So that's the second half of Mark. We're not going to look at that. We're going to look at the first. Um, One-way love. Reading Mark 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. That's a mixed-race country. It's a desolate place, like we heard there. It's, a, it's, a, it's definitely the wilderness, the forgotten place. You wouldn't go there if you were um, self-respecting. To the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, there's the word, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Um, he lived amongst the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. You hear the helplessness here? He lives in a cemetery, because that's where nobody else goes. They try to chain him, and he can't, because he's got no, he doesn't care about his own body. And he'll pull, and he'll pull, and he'll bleed, and he'll tear, and he'll rip his own flesh, because he's not in his right mind. Remember, repentance is coming to your senses when things are now ordered and all that. This is going to be a massive collision here. Um, Night and day amongst the tombs and on the mountains he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when Jesus saw him from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And we talked about this last week. Without fail, who recognizes Jesus? Remember, we can't. Two things. We don't see things the way they are actually. We see things the way we, we are. We see things the way we need them to be. It's kind of the primary sort of text that I'm trying to follow along. That we can't not, not see things clearly. We've got these glasses, this, this filter, this lens, where through our sin, we don't see things correctly where, again, Luther, who's behind all this, uh, says a theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is. It seems like a simple phrase, 
And in 1518, there's a massive amount of wisdom in that throwaway line. A theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is. Well, the demons in this instance are theologians of the cross because they call a thing what it is. Jesus, son of the most high God, every demon recognizes Jesus immediately for who he is. So, um, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And then one of the most confusing things, Jesus barters with these demons. And he was saying to them, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Not unlike the woman in the story with the psychotic break and the depression and the anxiety and being out of her right mind, she's fractured. She's a fractured, splintered soul, a legion of pieces, a thousand little pieces, 10,000 little pieces. What was that book that was shown to be a fraud? It's still a good title for a book. Um, my name is Legion. Pleased to meet you. I want you to guess my name. Um, my name is Legion. I'm not a unified soul. I'm broken. I'm fractured. I'm divided. I can't see things the way they are. On my best day, maybe I see in a mirror dimly, like a mosaic, where all the pieces, just for a moment, line up. But most of the time, they're so disparate. They're all over the place. What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly, he begged Jesus earnestly, not to send them out into the country. Now a great herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. This is somebody's 401k. You know, this is their livelihood. This is their entire, this is generational wealth. We really are talking that. Um, and a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs and let us enter them. And so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out, of, uh, came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled. Of course, fear. Ah, who is this man that even the wind and the seas would obey him? And 2,000 pigs were killed because they ran out of their mind into the ocean like lemmings. And people came out to see what had just happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. <clears throat> Repentance. Coming to your senses. Order. No longer a legion, but one. I am Gil. The name you gave me. The name you've known since before time. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened, and the demon-possessed man to the what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. <laughs> the most reasonable thing that the Bible could ever say. If you witness this, you're like, please leave. <laughs> this is not. We can't do this here. This is this is Mayberry. This is Birmingham. This is this is a nice place. Please go away. Please go away. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, um, as an aside, if you're sort of following sort of interesting words, I would know the word for the Holy Spirit is often called parakleo, which means one called alongside, the comforter, the advocate, that's what we normally call it in that instance. Well, the word begged here or implored throughout this chapter is the same verb there, parakleo. The Holy Spirit is our beggar, is what it's saying. When later... 
that the scripture will describe the Holy Spirit as our parakleo, the one who is called alongside to plead what we cannot plead for ourselves on our behalf. He's begging for us. I mean, it just holds a whole new shade on the humility of God, lowering himself as the Holy Spirit to be our beggar. Please, have mercy upon Gil. He's not in his right mind. His name is Legion, but he can be saved. Um, so, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, paracleoed him, Holy Spirited him, that he might be with him. But Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now, if you've been following Mark up until this point, every time Jesus has done a miracle, he said what? Tell no one. But now to this man in this northern part of the kingdom, uh, in the, 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 the mixed race, sort of forgotten, desolate place, Go home. Go home and tell everyone. Tell everyone that the Lord has had mercy upon you. And the man went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And what did everybody do? And everyone marveled. Again, this wonder, awe, fear, love, praise. Who is this man? All I want to do today is just sort of set up a couple of stories, stories from the scripture, Jairus, his dead daughter, um, the woman who'd been bleeding for 14 years, this demon, all those, this demon-possessed man, all these people who are around him, please leave us, go away, and then remembering the story, which typifies, which, which gives us that sense of the possibility of one-way love in a human relationship, but mark this, it's not the adjurement, the, um, I'm not begging you, paracleo, to, um, to go and do likewise, to simply try harder at doing one-way love. Now, if somebody loves me one way, <laughs> thank you. That's what I want to say. I'm going to be marveled. I'm going to be wonderful. But we can't. And then we can. And I won't. But then I do. And it's something like this word falling on my hardened heart that I think is the catalyst for that movement of, uh, of the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing and allowing one-way love to be actually real and true in my life where now I might, in, by the grace of God, be able to see things as they actually are and have some idea, remember the second part of that, to have some idea of how much God loves me how much God loves you. So, to be continued, just trying to lay it on pretty thick with one-way love. So, let me pray. Gracious Father, draw us to you. Correct me, certainly, Lord, where I am wrong. Um, humbly, Lord, correct me, and do not any of, let any of us um, remember that, try as we may. Um, but, Lord, where your word would go forth, um, let that word be strengthened. Um, Redouble it, um, triple it, uh, let it return to you 30, 60, or 100-fold for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. 
Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.